We're going to be in the book of John, John chapter 16. For about a year now, we've been walking through um, the fourth gospel. Um, when we say the word gospel, sometimes we refer to those events um, which, uh, which are historical events through which um, Jesus Christ accomplished our salvation when he died in our place for our sins, when he suffered on the cross for you and for me. And then he rose again and he ascended to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. That is the gospel, the good news. One can be saved only by believing in that good news and trusting that 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 is true. Uh, But sometimes when we use the word gospel, we're referring to a genre of books which um, provides in narrative form a summary of that teaching. And there are four gospels in in, in the Bible, four gospels, four summaries of the saving work of Jesus Christ, the saving life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And the four Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so um, they're, they're not unrelated, but sometimes um, if you don't have a church background, it's good just to explain that, that we are in the fourth Gospel about the one Gospel. Uh, and we're in John 16. And we've been walking through that Gospel for about a year now. And uh, we, we've seen that John has been this master of teaching us about Jesus through signs, through showing us that Jesus is the, the light of the world and that he is the good shepherd, that, um, that he is the one who comes to baptize in the spirit and, and purify our hearts and clean our hearts, much as the priest cleans out the temple. And we get to this point in the Gospel of John, and it is on the last night that Jesus lives before his death. Um, this is the last night. It's called the Good, uh, the Last Supper Discourse. Uh, this takes place between John 13 and John 16. And we are in the last portion of the Last Supper Discourse. So this is these words that we're about to read today are Jesus' last overt teaching of his disciples. Uh, These are Jesus' last words, his epitaph, the last thing that he wants uh, his disciples to to hear him teach them. Now, of course, next week we'll we'll transition into Jesus' last last big prayer in the four Gospels, the high priestly prayer. But this section that we're going to be in is is some of Jesus' last words, his last overt teaching um, before he went to die on the cross. And so it behooves us to pay close attention to it. Um, because if Jesus said this on the night uh, bef- on which he was betrayed, hours before he breathed his last breath, probably was important. So look with me, John chapter 16, verses 16 through 33. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask ask him. uh, So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. 
In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Father in heaven, we ask today that you would help us to understand these words. You'd help us to understand these words in a deeper way than the 12 did on this night. And Father, that you would help us to grasp your promises. That they would be as precious to us as they were important to you to, to say them through your Son. Pray for this in the name of your Son, and by your Spirit. Amen. I want to focus this morning on, on verse 33, those last words in verse 33. In, in the world, Jesus says, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In the world, you will have tribulation. You'll have trials and, and suffering. You'll have Uh, difficulties, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And if there's one thing every single person in this room can agree with, it's the first half of that. In the world, you will have tribulation. Uh, If there's one thing that all mankind has in common, it is suffering. The reality of, uh, of this life on this planet, life in this broken world, is one of suffering one of relational conflict, one of health problems, one of work problems, one of family problems, uh, one of your house does not uh, do all the things you want it to do, especially if you bought an old house. In this world, you will have tribulation. To say nothing of the fact that trying to live as a faithful Christian in this day and age sometimes brings about conflict. Some of you know that conflict that you've had just trying to be a faithful Christian and walk and live as someone of integrity in this broken world, in which you've met with overt or maybe covert, covert conflict because of that. In this world, you will have tribulation. And then Jesus says, take Take heart take heart. So Jesus is saying, you'll have tribulation, you'll have suffering, you'll have trials, but but take heart. Take heart. How how in the world um, can you and I take heart when we live in a world that is so broken? When we live in a world that is so fractious, 
When we live in a world that is so corrupted and polluted with sin, how can we take heart? Well, I want to talk today about how you and I can take heart in the promises of Christ. So what, here's my outline today. Um, I, we're going to talk about the trial that is coming. We're going to talk about Christ's victory. The trial that is coming, Christ's victory. And then we're going to talk about Christ's promises, his promises. And I'm just going to warn you, if you like things to be neat and even, uh, most of the sermon is going to be point three. So if you're listening along, you're like, oh, good, he's already on point three. It'll be out of here fast. Hold your restaurant reservations. Because point three will be the lion's share of the sermon. But I got to set it up. I got to get there first. So the, the trials that are coming, what is, Jesus, what is Jesus talking about? What is Jesus talking about with the trial that is coming? Um, he, he is referring to this fact that he is going to die and be resurrected and be ascended to the Father. And so we see reference to all this um, in, in this chapter. So he says in verse in verse 20, he says, I came from the Father and I've come into the world and now I'm going, uh, now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. So he says, I came down, I was born here, I've come into the world and now I'm leaving, I'm going to die and then I'm going to the Father. But then he'll, he says, he says, uh, you will see me. He says, uh, you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. And so Jesus is referring to this fact that he's going to die and then he's going to be resurrected and they're going to celebrate and then he's going to leave. Uh, that that Jesus' absence here is going to lead to great sorrow and great anguish, as if this is not enough. What we saw in the previous week's passage, what we saw last week, is that um, when Jesus leaves, uh, that he will leave his disciples in the moment, in the hour of persecution. So we saw, for example, in chapter 16, verse 2, says, They will put you out of synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. So Jesus is leaving his disciples in the moment of of great persecution, of great trial, uh, when there's an inevitable conflict that's going to come upon the church and the world. And as if that wasn't enough, there's kind of this blanket statement in verse 33, in the world you will have tribulations, which is kind of a blanket statement. It can refer to those persecutions that are coming. It can also refer to a whole uh, panoply of of suffering. It can refer to... um, health issues. It can refer to conflict in this world. It can refer to just living in a broken world. And so Jesus says, you're going you're gonna to live in a broken world. You're going to live in a world that has tribulations and trials. You're going to have live in a world in which temptations abound. You're going to live in a world in, in which you feel the weight of the brokenness of this world on a daily basis. And in addition to that, because I'm leaving, uh, you will be killed in my place uh, uh, and people will think they're offering something to God. This is the trial that is coming for the church when Jesus is speaking to them. And this is the trial that you and I face as well. This trial of living in a broken world, a world that doesn't work right, a world that, in the words of one theologian, is not the way it's supposed to be. That there's something twisted and contorted and polluted and for all the beauty that is in this world. This world is not our home. And Christ says very overtly, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's a past tense verb. The, the, the ministry of Jesus has definitively overcome the world. That Jesus has once and for all defeated the problems of this world, of living in a broken world. And he has overcome the world. And the question is how? 
How does Jesus' victory overcome these tribulations, these trials, these, uh, the, the difficulty of living in a broken world? Let me give you three ways, three ways uh, in the Gospel of John that Jesus wins the victory. Three ways. Number one, he is, we saw this um, one of the very first weeks, um, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So you and I live in a broken world. We live in a world that is fractious and contentious. We live in a world where we feel the weight of our own sin and guilt. We feel shame for what we've done. And Jesus comes as the perfect summation, as the perfect consummation, as the fulfillment of all the, uh, of all the prophecies of, and sacrifices in the Old Testament. Uh, there was this one uh, sacrifice that they would make in the Old Testament called the scapegoat. And the scapegoat would take all the sins of the people and it would wander off into the wilderness and die alone in the wilderness. And Jesus says, I am the better scapegoat. I take all of your sins and I carry them off into the wilderness. I carry them off into death and they die with me there. There's another sacrifice where, where they would take a, a lamb in the Old Testament and they would slaughter it and they would put the, the blood over the doorpost uh, uh, for the time of Passover so that the wrath of God would pass over their houses. It's rooted in the book of Exodus. And Jesus says, I am the greater Passover lamb, that my blood is put over your head so that the wrath of God will pass over you. I am the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So he takes away our sins, he takes away our shame, he takes away the penalty that you and I deserve from God. He takes away the wrath. He also um, defeats death. He defeats the grave. We saw this in John 11 when, G- when Jesus is speaking to Martha and Mary before he raises Lazarus from the dead. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. That Whoever believes in me, though he will die, yet he will live again. We saw in John 10 that when he was referring to himself as the good shepherd, he says, I came so that you could have life and have it abundantly. The death of Jesus puts death to death. It puts the grave into the grave. It conquers death. It defeats death. It defeats the grave. It is stronger than death. Death cannot hold him back. When Christ comes and he defeats the power, not only of sin, the penalty of sin, but he defeats the grave. And the grave swallows itself up in the resurrection of Christ. That Christ, even though Christians still die, Gospel John doesn't deny that, Bible doesn't deny that, when Christians die, we die in hope of the resurrection. We die in hope of the fact that Christ will rise again. We do not grieve as those who do not have hope, Scripture says. So the, the death of Christ, the, the gospel of Christ, not only conquers the penalty of sin, but it also defeats the grave. The death of Christ likewise casts Satan out. The death of Christ likewise casts Satan out. We see this in John 12. We see that in John 12, 31 and 32, he says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. If you were to ask me what is one of the most surprising things you've seen in the Gospel of John when you've been preaching through it, I would tell you this, that the Gospel of John portrays the battle between Christ and Satan. I have never seen this in the Gospel of John, but I've seen it as we've been walking through it the last year or so. That in the Gospel of John, there is a, there is a battle between Satan and between uh, Christ, and Satan does not win. As we saw last week, the ruler of this world is judged. 
So Christ, by his death, he breaks the bond of death. Christ, by his death, he breaks the penalty of sin. And Christ, by his death, defeats the ruler of death, Satan himself. In in the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, Christ accomplishes a final victory where he removes our guilt and he removes the decay of the grave and he also defeats the prince of the power of the air. This is the victory that Christ has accomplished. And the question is, if he's leaving us, what good does that do us? What good does that do us? How can that encourage us? How does that equip us in the midst of this trial? To which Jesus, in this passage, gives three promises. Three promises in this passage. Three promises that are purchased by this death that that Christ gives to his people um, as some of the very last words before he goes to face his own death. Some of the very last last words. So those three promises, I'll say them and then we'll walk through them. They're, number one, an irrevocable joy. An irrevocable joy. Number two, an unfettered access to the Father. An unfettered access to the Father. And number three, an indomitable, got to say that three times fast, an indomitable peace. An, un, an irrevocable joy, an unfettered access to the Father, and an indomitable peace. Here's the irrevocable joy. Look at what Jesus says in verse 19. He says, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Jesus is giving a promise to his disciples right here. He says, In just a few hours, you will weep and lament. You will cry, you will, you will long for deliverance, your heart will hurt that you will not have me with you, and the world will rejoice over you as a victor. And yet a little while, you will sing songs of sorrow, and the world will sing songs of joy. And then here's the promise. You will be sorrowful but your sorrow will turn to joy. This is the promise that Jesus gives. Yes, the hour is coming and it's now here and it's in just a little bit. And Peter, you are not ready, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Your sorrow will turn to joy. Jesus gives this analogy in verse 21, which seems very apt. When a woman is giving birth, She has sorrow because her hour has come. When a woman is giving birth, when when a woman is in labor pangs, when when she is uh, giving birth to a baby and there's pain and there's hurt and there's there's anxiety and there's nervousness and there's fear, and, and then all of that disappears when she has delivered the baby. And she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Jesus is not denying that in this world we will have sorrow. He's actually promising it. He's merely promising that in that hour, that sorrow, that pain, that hurt will turn to joy. 
that the sorrow itself will be turned on its head. That sorrow itself will turn to joy. He says in verse 22, you have sorrow now. But I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. And get this. Here's the irrevocable part. No one. No one will take it from you. When they put you in irons and they throw you in prison. No one will take it from you. When you're put on that cross to be crucified for me, no one will take that joy from you. When everything else in this world seems like it's broken and fading, no one will be able to take it from you. There's an irrevocable joy that comes when you and I have faith in Jesus. When you and I know Jesus, there is a joy that we can have that is irrevocable. Nobody can take it. Nobody can steal it. Nobody can snatch it because nobody can take us away from the Son. Because the Father does not take back what he's given to the Son. So for you and I, there is an irrevocable joy in Christ. Jesus even says, until now, in verse 24, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So not only is he giving us this irrevocable joy, but he is giving us the promise of more joy, of a fuller joy as we walk with Christ, as we pray to his Father, as his Father becomes ours. Not only do we have joy in salvation, we also have joy in sanctification. Not only do we have joy in the fact that the burden has rolled off our back and we are free, but we have joy the closer that we draw to that city. We have an irrevocable joy. Promise number two, we have an unfettered access to the Father. An unfettered access to the Father. Jesus says, verse 23, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Jesus is promising here that when he dies and when he's resurrected and when he ascends, that the disciples will speak to the Father more so than even speaking to Him. That's the promise. He says, in that day, you'll ask nothing of me. You won't, you, you won't, uh, you're the object of your prayer, you're going to pray directly to the Father. He says, until now, you've not asked for nothing in my name, asking you will receive that your joy may be full. And so Jesus is saying that, that our relationship is going to shift slightly because I will become the one who is carries your prayers to the Father. So your prayers are going to go to the Father now, and by my, in my name, by my blood, covered by my righteousness, I will bring them before the Father. So Christians, we pray to the Father through the Son. There are one or two prayers in the New Testament that are directed to the Son, but the majority of times, the pattern that we see in the New Testament of prayer is to the Father through the Son, to the Father in the name of Jesus. And Jesus says, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. This is the promise that Jesus is giving, that the hour is coming when you will know the Father personally. 
You won't need me to come and tell you about the Father because you will know him personally. You'll, you, you'll know him plainly. He says, up until now, I've tried to explain him to you as, as the vine dresser, and I'm the vine, and I've tried to give you these images that are helpful, but his promise is that you will know the Father. And I believe this, this promise is fulfilled immediately following his resurrection. When, when the women come to the tomb and they're, they're running back to tell the other disciples, and Jesus meets them on the road, and he says in John 20, Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father. That right after Jesus is risen from the dead, the pro- this promise is fulfilled that you and I can draw near to the Father and we have the Father of Jesus as our Father. We've been adopted into his family. We have an unfettered access to him. Jesus says, in that day you will ask in my name and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Now, Jesus is not saying here that he does not intercede for us. Of course, Christ intercedes. We know that from the book of Hebrews, that he's our great high priest who's seated next to the right hand of God the Father. And through him, through our forerunner, we draw near behind the veil. Jesus is, of course, not denying that, but he is saying that that when you and I pray, we bring our words to the Father in his name. He says, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me have believed that I came from God because you and I love Christ and we put our faith in him. We've received him as our Lord and Savior. The Father himself loves us. That we have a, the same, uh, an analogous relationship to the heavenly Father that Jesus himself has to the Father. We've been welcomed into his family and Jesus, the Father loves us because we love Jesus, because we believe in Jesus and we've trusted in him. We're welcomed into this relationship between father and son and his father becomes our father. And the implication that when Jesus says in verse 28, I came from the father and have come into the world and now I'm leaving the father and going into the, and go, leaving the world and going to the father. The implication is that Jesus will be with the father as you and I are praying to the father through him. Christians, we have an unfettered access to the Father. We we, we don't have to pray to somebody else in the hopes that that person will take our prayers to the Father. That we don't have to go to the priest and give the priest an offering so that the priest can carry the incense into the Father. That even right now, even as we read Scripture and we pray Scripture and we sing Scripture, that the Father is listening to us because of the blood of Jesus. We have an unfettered access to to the Father. Number three, we have an indomitable hope. An indomitable hope. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Disciples, they think they have it. He said, Now we know, now we understand, and that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And I just love Jesus' response in verse 31. He says, do you now believe? You Really? You think you understand? And he repeats what he's already said this essentially in chapter 13. He says, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home. 
and will leave me alone. And the disciples know exactly what he's saying because that language of scattering is drawing on the Old Testament prophets that refers to the exile of God's people. So just as, and you all know this because you guys remember every word of the last couple sermons, and I know you remember we talked about the exile back in December. You, you remember that the people of God are exiled from the promised land because they've broken the covenant. And when Jesus says, you will be scattered, he's drawing on that same language. He's saying, just like the people in the Old Testament were scattered to the four winds, so you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. And Jesus says, yet, I am not alone. For the Father is with me. Jesus says, even when you abandon me, even when you leave me alone, I have this peace because I know that the Father is with me. I am in him and he is in me. And he says, I have said these things to you. I'm speaking this to you. I'm telling this to you so that you may have peace. And notice those two words, in me. The peace that Christians can have is in Christ. You see, when Jesus uses that language of being scattered, when he uses the language of exile, it's impossible to miss what Jesus also is meaning, because as we read earlier today in Jeremiah 31 in our service, that the scattering of the people of God ends with the Father welcoming them home. And so when Jesus says, you will be scattered, the implication is that yet the Father will gather you again. And you will have him as your God, and and he will have you as his people. That he will show you his everlasting kindness and will bring you near to him. And the point of what Jesus is saying is, this peace that I have in my hour of need, you can have too. The peace that I have because the Father has not abandoned me, you can have too because the Father will gather you back again. You can have this peace which is indomitable, even though everyone else forsakes you, even though everyone else abandons you, you can stay steady in his love for you. Because of the victory that Christ achieves, the the way that he has overcome the world, Christians have an irrevocable joy. We have an unfettered access to the Father, and we have an indomitable peace because the Father is with us. And even though the world looks like, even though it looks like in the world that we are alone, we know that we could never be. Oh, Christians, you and I have reason to take heart in the midst of these trials. We have reason to find courage, that we have reason to have gusto in the face of such winds, because we know that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. So let me, let me give you eight applications, eight applications from this passage. Number one, number one, the picture that we get of God in this passage is of a God who is himself love. Uh, the picture that we get of this passage is of a God who is himself love. John will say that, of course, later in, uh, the, gospel, in the first letter of John. Uh, there's a great preacher named Jonathan Edward who is best known for a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. His sermon, Heaven is a World of Love, I think is actually better. 
And this is what he says. Heaven is a part of the creation which God has built for this end, to be the place of his glorious presence, and it is his abode forever. Here he will dwell and gloriously manifest himself to eternity. And this renders heaven a world of love. For God is the fountain of love as the sun is the fountain of light. And therefore the glorious presence of God in heaven fills heaven with love as the sun placed in the midst of the hemisphere and a clear day fills the world with light. The apostle tells us that God is love in 1 John 4, 8. And therefore seeing he is an infinite being, it follows that he is an infinite fountain of love. Seeing that he is an all-sufficient being, it follows that he is full and overflowing and an inexhaustible fountain of love. Seeing he is an unchangeable and eternal being, he is an unchangeable and eternal source of love. There even in heaven dwells that God from whom every stream of holy love, yea, every drop that is or ever was proceeds. There dwells God the Father and so the Son who are united in infinitely dear and incomprehensible mutual love. There dwells God the Father, who is the Father of mercies and so the Father of love, who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There dwells Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the Prince of peace and love, who so loved the world that he shed his blood and poured out his soul unto death for it. There dwells the Mediator by whom all God's love is expressed to the saints, by whom the fruits of it have been purchased and through whom they are communicated and through whom love is imparted to the hearts of all the church. There dwells Christ in both his natures and human and divine, sitting with the Father in the same throne. There is the Holy Spirit, the spirit of divine love in whom the very essence of God, as it were, all flows out or is breathed forth in love and by whom, by whose immediate influence all holy love is shed abroad in the hearts of all the church. There is in heaven this fountain of love, this eternal three in one is set open without any obstacle to hinder access to it. There this glorious God is manifested and shines forth in full glory. And beams of love, there the fountain overflows and streams and rivers of love and delight. Enough for all to drink at and to swim in, yea, so as to overflow the world as it were with a deluge of love. Christians, this is the picture that we get of God in this passage that the relationship of father and son is one of deep, eternal, infinite, inexhaustible, all-sufficient love. The father loves the son, and the son loves the father, which means, number two, that you and I can have this love, this fountain of love, by faith alone in Christ alone. That's as plain as day in this passage says, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. That salvation comes by faith alone in Christ alone. It doesn't become good enough by earning that love. You and I cannot be saved by being good enough for that love or most fitting for that love. The reality is you and I in and of ourselves is an affront to the divine love if we enter into his presence which is why the Son came to die on our place in the cross. This is why the Son came to to shed His blood for us, to to sprinkle our hearts clean, to to change us and make us, to clean us, even as the Son overturned the uh, the tables in the temple. 
Christians, you and I can only have access to this fountain by his love. We can only have access to this fountain by faith. We can only have access to him by faith alone and Christ alone. And, and if you are here today and you've never received that, that fountain of love, we'd love to talk with you about what it looks like to put your faith in Jesus. It's as simple as saying to the Lord, Lord, I have had enough of my ways, my sins, my mistakes, my regrets, all the things that I have done wrong. Take all of me because I want all of you. I want all of your son. I want all of your love. I want all of your righteousness. I want all that he has. Take all of me because I want all of you. I want your forgiveness. I know that I need it. I know that I've wronged you. Yet I want all of you. If you've never done that, we'd love to talk with you more about what that would look like after the service. You and I can have access to this love by faith alone. And yet, number three, Christians are saved by an imperfect faith and a perfect Savior. We're saved by an imperfect faith and a perfect Savior. See, the reality is, uh, maybe when you had your conversion experience, you raised your hand at VBS, or you walked down an aisle, or you filled out a card, or you wrote your name in your Bible, or you nailed down on the, uh, the kitchen floor, and none of that's wrong. I'd encourage all, all of those things can be a, a, a fine way to express your faith in Christ. Maybe you prayed a prayer, you said yes at VBS, or maybe uh, you had a conversation with a parent. Those are all good things, but they are not what saves you. We are not saved by the expression of our faith. We're saved by the object of our faith. We're not saved by how good our faith is. We're saved by how good the one is who we put our faith in. Even in this passage, we see the Father, uh, Jesus says, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed. Past tense, they believe. See, it says there they have faith. And then Jesus says in verse 31, do you now believe? The faith that the disciples have in this passage is imperfect, but it's placed in a perfect Savior. Oh, the story in, uh, in Mark 9 of the centurion who comes because his, his son is sick and he comes, to the, he comes to Jesus to heal his son. And Jesus is trying to help him get to the next step. And finally, the, the father uh, breaks down. He says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And so often when we draw near to the Father, that's how we are. We say, Lord, I believe. I believe that you are enough for me. I trust you. I, I, love, I, I want you to take all my sin. And I want all of your righteousness. And I know that my belief is imperfect. And that's okay because what saves you is not the quality of your faith, but the quality of the one that you put your faith in. Say, how much faith do I have to have to save me? The faith of a mustard seed. Oh, Christians, we are saved by an imperfect faith and a perfect Savior. Number four, if you and I as Christians have been given this irrevocable joy, that means that we should rejoice. We ought to rejoice. The promise that God gives in this passage is that every sorrow no exceptions will be turned to joy. That everything that is sad in the words of Tolkien will come untrue. In this side of glory, of course, every joy is interspersed with sorrow. 
But we look forward to the day when every tear is wiped from our eyes. When every hurt and every pain is removed. When every broken bone is set right. When every hole that is hollow in our soul is filled in. And so we rejoice in the hope of that day. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, I, I, as you guys know, this is in your bulletin, and I, I'm a verbal processor, so I can't stop talking about it. I just read um, The Pilgrim's Progress, and volume two is probably better than volume one. Um, in vol- Kyle's shaking it. Yeah, that is true, though. No. All right, anyways. Uh, in volume two, so you have to remember, as the Pilgrim's Progress gets started, Christian, this is a story about Christian, he comes to what's called the Slough of Despond. He's come to this, this swamp and this slough, this, this muck and this mire, and he gets stuck in it because he's feeling despondent and, and guilty, and he's not sure what to do about it. Well, in volume two, um, there's a reference back to the Slough of Despond. And there's a, describing another character, and he says, he had in his mind, as it were, a slough of despond that he carried with him everywhere. Maybe you're here today, and you say, I cannot stop carrying that slough. There's that sorrow that I carry, like this whole idea of rejoice. What if I struggle? What if I'm in a place in my life where I can't rejoice? What What if I can't get there? And my advice would be this. There's a great book written on this topic by John Piper called um, When I Don't Desire God. It's for free on his website on desiringgod.org. But um, Dr. Piper can be slightly wordy. And so I'll, I'll boil it down. I'll boil the big idea of that book down. When you struggle to rejoice, when, you str- when your heart isn't in it, engage in acts of joy until your heart follows up catches up so when you struggle to rejoice when singing these songs in a minute we will sing he will hold me fast and you're in your soul saying I, I i just don't feel that yet i'm just not there yet we'll sing the song trusting that your heart will catch up engage in acts of joy you say my heart's not in it reading the bible we'll read the bible anyways you say my heart's not in it to pray we'll pray anyways because those are the ways that God uses to stir the coals of our heart. So when you struggle to rejoice, engage in acts of joy while you wait for your heart to catch up. Number five, if you and I have unfettered access to the Father, we should use it. If we have unfettered access, we've been brought into the fellowship of the Father, we should use it. In other words, one word application, we should pray. We should pray. If you and I have been brought into the fellowship of the Father by the blood of the Son, we should pray. When Christians pray, we pray to the Father in the name of Jesus. When we say in the name of Jesus, we're, we're praying under his status, under all of his achievements, under everything that he's done to make us holy. We're not drawing near to the throne of glory by, by our own righteousness. We're not drawing near to the throne of glory by our own worthiness. We're drawing near to the throne of glory by His. And when we pray, we're trying to pray in accord with His will. So maybe the reason that Jesus is not answering your prayer for a new Maserati 
is because that's not in his will. And Jesus, Jesus gives us all kinds of indications about the things that are in his will and his word. That we should pray that he would give us our daily bread. That we, we should pray that he would forgive us our trespasses even as we forgive others whose trespasses are against us. In fact, and just as we'll see next week and the weeks to follow, uh, Jesus is going to teach us to pray in John 17. So maybe if you're here and you struggle with prayer, and you, you, maybe you would say, I just, I've never really been able to have what I call a perfect health, uh, prayer life. I think everybody in this room would say they've been there before. I, I just encourage you to pray the prayers of Jesus after him. To, to work your way through the Gospels and find all the prayers that Jesus has and pray after them. Maybe you want to pray your way through the Psalms and pray the Psalms for yourself and for other people. And if, if still getting your heart set with that is, is difficult for you, or maybe you think, ah, I've tried that, just not quite right, I'd encourage you on the bookshelf back there, there's a great book called Prone to Wander. And uh, we, we gave that away to our volunteers, but we had extras. And so we got six or seven of those copies. Please take one. Um, I, pray, I prayed my way through that book during a time, season in my life that I would have described as very dry. The Lord used it in my life in an amazing way. I, I just encourage you, if you have unfettered access to the Father, you should make use of it. It should be something that you and I um, take advantage of to draw near to the king of all the universe and the center of all reality and make use of this gift that he's given us. I'd also say that we should have peace. We should have peace. We should pray that God would give us the peace that surpasses all understanding. We should have peace. And maybe you say, well, how do I have this peace that Jesus promised me? That Jesus promises that we can have peace in the same that we can have peace in the same way that He does when everyone else abandons Him and the Father is with Him. See, the the way that you and I access that peace that He's given to us is by preaching the gospel to ourselves, by reminding ourselves of His great and precious promise, by by bathing ourselves in His good and kind Word. It says in Romans five, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts, the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. We can have peace with God because of all that Christ has accomplished for us. And so the way that when you and I are in that place and we feel so despondent, we feel so frustrated, we're carrying that slough around in our minds. The way that we have peace in that is we preach the gospel to ourselves. We remind ourselves of all that Christ has done for us. and We take comfort in the fact that he keeps his word. He does not promise things that are not true also say number seven christ has overcome the world christ has overcome the world now if christ has overcome the world that means that who hasn't us in and of ourselves we have not overcome the world the way that we have victory and acts of victory over the world is because we have access to christ christ is the one who's overcome the world it's like in psalm forty six ten when um when the psalmist says, be still and know that I am God. It's a great verse. I love that verse. You just have to recognize God is saying, stop trying to be God. 
Be still and know that I am God, not you. Be still and know that I'm the one who makes the, the devouring, uh, the, who makes the devourer to cease. I am the one who stays you when the world is collapsing in. And so when Christ says, I have overcome the world, we need to take comfort in that, but we also need to be humbled before that because that means he's the one that overcomes. He's the one that conquers, and we conquer through him. And yet, as much as we might be humbled by that, we can also have confidence in that because he has overcome the world, because the victory that we have does not depend on our own efforts, because the victory that he's achieved does not depend on what we have done. He's overcome the world, and that's a good thing because if it was up to me to overcome the world, if it was up to me to defeat death, if it was up to me to remove the penalty of sin and defeat Satan, we would be in trouble. But because Christ has overcome the world, because his all-sufficient death and his resurrection and his ascension has taken place, we can have that victory, which means, number eight, that we should take heart. That we should take heart that we should be bold and courageous and confident in all that he's done, that we should take heart. I love the story of Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, two, two English Protestants in the, in the English Reformation who, um, when Mary, uh, Bloody Mary took the, the throne of England, um, she started persecuting the church, and she dragged these two, these two men to this corner in, in Oxford. I've been there. And she, she had them put pyres and and wood all around and they lit the fire and nicholas ridley is a little bit anxious and nervous about this understandably and hugh says master ridley be of good cheer and play the man for i trust that today we will light a fire that by god's grace will never be put out oh christians let us be of good cheer and play the man when the world seems like it's falling underneath our feet, when the sky seems like it's collapsing, when the mountains are turning over, when the the very sun is blacked out, when strife and conflict threatens to overwhelm us, when we're, we're pinched with crisis, take heart, for I have overcome the world. Father in heaven, we thank you that you sent your son to overcome the world, to win the victory that we could not. We thank you that you sent your son to die on the cross in our place for our sins. We thank you that you sent your son to give us this joy that nobody can take away from us. We thank you that you sent your son to give us access to you. We thank you that you sent your son to give us a peace that is indomitable. Father, I pray that you would help us to take heart. Pray that you would help us to be courageous and bold. Pray that you would help us to have confidence because you keep your word and you are true. And you who promised are faithful. Father, we pray for all this in the name of your Son, our Savior, our Messiah, our Conqueror. Amen.